You're listening to From the Burgundy Chairs, a podcast for health system leaders created by Santa's Health. Hello, everybody. I'm Dan Carbon, a principal at Santa's Health, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Samir Sinha for a conversation on COVID-19 and its impact on our older population. Of course, we're unable to record this podcast in person, so sound quality may suffer, and we apologize in advance for the sounds of any crying young children in the background. As you may know, Dr. Samir Sinha is one of Canada's most prominent advocates for the needs of older adults. He currently serves as the, the Director of Geriatrics at Sinai Health System and the University Health Network in Toronto, and also serves as the Peter and Sheila Godso Chair in Geriatrics at Mount Sinai Hospital. Since 2012, Dr. Sinha has served as an advisor to the Ontario government as the expert lead of Ontario's senior strategy. Dr. Sinha is also an associate professor in the departments of medicine, family and community medicine, and the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto, and an assistant professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Sinha. No, thank you very much, Dan. You've spent your your whole career um, not only serving the needs of the older population, but but really trying to serve as an advocate for improving how our healthcare system and our broader social system responds to the needs of of older adults. And and this must be a very scary time for for a lot of those people that you serve and those people you're close with. I read something the other day, Dr. Leslie Russell from the University of Sydney described COVID-19 as an almost perfect killing machine for the elderly. And um, that, you know, you see these very, very scary stats around the mortality rate for uh, particularly very older uh, um, adults in in Italy and in Spain and even uh, starting to see some here in in Canada. Uh, How is that? How? How are your kind of patients and the, and the people you work with coping, um, not just those that have been infected, but, you know, with the, with the fear of what, what could be coming in coming weeks? Yeah, I think for some people it's abstract because, again, uh, you know, compared to our older population across Canada, you know, just being over six million strong, um, you know, we don't have as many older adults being affected. So there's this kind of weird yeah. situation where, you know, some people complain that their parents aren't taking this seriously, or they don't think it's that big a deal. Um, And so there's kind of an underestimation of, you know, if you will, the killing machine. And then there are others who are absolutely terrified, you know, barricaded themselves in their house, um, and, uh, and are really worried, you know, that this, um, this will be what does them in. So you see a whole spectrum of reactions that occur here. And then you also have these weird reactions that occur in society, or I wouldn't say weird, but but sad reactions that occur where, you know, you have this intergenerational tensions that occur where hashtags were floating around on Twitter, like boomer remover. Um, And the idea that because this is a virus that ironically doesn't go against the young, but really just picks off the old, both of which tend to have weakened immune systems, uh, the young having a developing system and the older uh, group having a system that weakens as you get older. For one, some odd reason, this has a complete predilection for older people. It spares younger people. And so really, this is where you see those deadly effects where you have rates of, um, uh, of kill rates, if you will, that 
while they're one to two percent for the general population, they start going from three to eight to 15 to 24 percent as you go from your 60s to your 90s. Um, and then you see rates of, of death in long-term care homes of around 33 percent. So you realize that if this gets to our older people, especially when we have no treatments, we have no vaccine, and we don't know when any of that will be coming, uh, if this if this works through, you know, say our older population, say all six million Canadians get this, you know, we're talking about a few million people dead. So this is these are scary notions right now, and I don't think that's really sunk in for most people. And uh, and I think this is what worries a lot of um, a lot of geriatricians or people who are caring for the older population. We realize how vulnerable they are, um, and you sometimes feel a bit helpless because. It's not a matter of um, if, it's more of a matter of when, and you don't know who this might negatively affect. Yeah, I, I think one of the interesting paradoxes I've seen in the uh, kind of coverage of COVID-19 and the polling associated with it is that the uh, level of concern expressed about the, about the virus is inversely related to your, to your chance of dying from it. So that the, the youngest in our population, um, you know, the youngest adults express the most concern with the health impacts of COVID-19 and the oldest express the least concern about the health impacts of COVID-19. Um, it's a, it just seems to be a strange kind of uh, reality. Do you have any thoughts on way that, why that may be? It's hard to, it's, it's always hard to kind of unpack those things until you get, you know, more data, if you will. But, you know, to, to a certain extent, you see this as well, that um, people who survive wildfires, for example, they find that younger people tend to be far more traumatized by these things than older adults, for example, because most of our older population lived through SARS and the fear that that struck in the hearts of Canadians or H1N1 and all these things. So, so you have to think about a young millennial, for example, where this is their first pandemic um, and it's scary and we have a media cycle and a social media cycle that's just ravenous right and and is, and is much slicker at getting our attention and putting the fear in us and keeping us glued to those television sets however yeah. you have lots of older adults who said some older people who've actually lived through spanish influenza and said i beat that um yeah. been through wars i've been through other things yeah. that you know you know what what'll happen will happen potentially and there's really not much you can do. So it may be that fact that many of these older folks have lived through a lot of terrible things and, and actually, you know, to a certain extent, may feel um, like they may have less to lose um, compared to a younger person yeah. who feels they have their entire life ahead of them. And some folks who feel that, you know, sometimes you realize that there's not much you can do other than just trying to do your best. Yeah. Yeah, I know, I know you've done a lot of work on uh, social isolation and the, the impact of social isolation and loneliness on, um, on older adults. And it's pretty clearly established linkages tying uh, social isolation in, in seniors to uh, enhance risk of cardiovascular death, um, dementia, depression, and, and just mortality overall. Um, do you, do you, how much does it occupy you at this point? that uh, the measures that we're going to be putting in pl place, especially as they prolong, are dramatically risking um, the, the, the health uh, physically and mentally of, uh, um, of the older population as we're, as we're requiring prolonged social isolation. It's a big issue. It's a big issue amongst older adults. And I think certainly, you know, keeping people more isolated, you know, is not good for them. And, and it was interesting because somebody, 
had posted, I think, on Twitter that uh, now that we all know what social isolation feels, especially as younger people who may be less socially isolated than others, you now realize how bad it is and actually how terrible it makes you feel. Um, how much we crave uh, social connection with friends. And it's not just a matter of being on the phone, it's actually being face to face with another human being. And it's a big issue for older adults, but actually ironically, you find that actually there's higher rates of social isolation, believe it or not, amongst, um, um, amongst millennials. Um, more people feel less connected at kind of the, in their 20s, for example, um, and less satisfied with their lives than people kind of later in later years of life. But we know that social isolation is a huge issue in older adults. And I think for younger people who've never actually experienced this as well, um, the mental health toll can be significant uh, as well. So I'm not so worried, you know, believe it or not, while I am concerned about social isolation and, and the related issues, I'm more concerned right now about the fact that I don't think, especially in long-term care homes, we have a really good handle uh, on, um, on really implementing the latest evidence. And I'm more worried that, you know, I, I'll take social isolation any day over the fact that I think there are unnecessary deaths happening across the country as we see COVID-19 sweep through nursing and, and retirement homes. Uh, and, and we're not still clearly applying the best evidence. And I think the challenge that I have with all of that is I feel that somehow it's our ageist views or our views that some lives are more important than others, or maybe even shaping uh, a level of inaction uh, to a certain extent as well. Yeah, can we, let's, let's shift, shift gears a bit to, to talk about long-term care in particular. And, and in the past week, you've, you've kind of seeded a, uh, an interesting and, and uh, uh, dynamic conversation about you know what what families uh, should or could do in this circumstance, or I guess what 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 you would do if if your if your mom was in a long term care home while this was happening, um, and and as interesting as that debate is, it, it kind of obscures I I think the more important debate which you just touched on, which is why have we been so far behind the ball on preventing infection getting into long-term care homes when it was so predictable that this would be the area where it would both spread very easily and uh, exert an enormous uh, and very immediate uh, death toll. And why has the public health guidance in particular been uh, so changeable in areas like, you know, PPEs for staff, in testing for uh, residents and staff, um, in the social isolation protocols and visitor protocols, it seems like we started in a very, very lax place in terms of the, the, the government uh, policy or public health guidance in long-term care. And uh, I've been hearing personally and, uh, and many of my colleagues from, um, you know, from unions that work with frontline providers from the homes themselves who've felt like they're really kind of behind the eight ball already uh, in terms of the response. Um, can you comment on that and then talk a little bit about, you know, more proactively, what, what do we need to do to slow down the spread of infection across all of the homes in, in Canada? Yeah, I, th I think it's, it's, it's been sad because I think we've, I think many people know that, you know, because our long-term care and, and, and which would, in, in my view, include home care, you know, uh, and care, you know, all the way to nursing homes has really been such a fragmented piece of our healthcare system. It's not covered under the Canada Health Act. So it's organized and regulated in very different ways. 
but we've really seen the systemic vulnerabilities that you know we've been struggling with for years and we've known about for years in long-term care homes about the rates at which you know people who work there are not given full-time employment so therefore they don't have access to benefits and things like sick days for example um, and that means that people work home to home right they'll, they'll work multiple shifts in different places as opposed to necessarily picking up um, and having full-time stable employment which is more likely what you're going to get in a hospital the fact that we pay, pay people in this environment less for example um, means that we just have massive turnover uh, in this system and all of these vulnerabilities basically mean that workers who miss a day of work will miss a day of pay they're more likely to come into those environments for to uh, working with the most vulnerable population and potentially come in and try and work their way through a sickness as opposed to in a hospital in downtown Toronto where if you're sick you know that you have sick leave um, you know you'll get a full day's pay and and you'll actually actively be encouraged to stay away so we've created this incredible double standard uh, in, in, in terms of the way we organize and finance um, our long-term care system which is now kind of laying these these um, systemic, if you will, vulnerabilities quite clear. But I think the other challenge too is you realize that because we've allowed that to happen, I think that we haven't really ever valued as much as we should kind of this sector, um, the people who live in it because they're hidden, you know, they're towards the end of life. They're not the, they're not the movers and shakers in our society anymore um, because, you know, they're, they're almost as someone told me the other day, aren't they kind of admitted for a terminal? This is a terminal admission. People go into these homes um, and, and they're closer to death than anybody else. So if COVID rips through, isn't that okay? Um, and it's almost this kind of really weird and sad kind of statement that almost those ideas are a bit permissible that, you know, that really, I mean, you know, we would never let some, we'd never um, have these ideas about a young child because their whole life would be stolen. But is it so bad if this sector has a number of deaths? Um, we have capacity issues anyways. Uh, you just start seeing really, really weird reactions. And then you have this other aspect where I'm very privileged to work at some of the best hospitals in the country where we have ample stores of PPE, for example, but you also see an entire sector where PPE levels um, significantly vary um, and they haven't been a priority to which to get to, for testing PPE and necessarily keeping up with the latest guidance. So the biggest double standard I see is at our downtown Toronto hospitals where, where we made a decision almost three weeks ago that all the staff should be masked because the science tells us that asymptomatic transition is, is a great issue, especially between staff and each other and staff and frontline or, and, and, and patients at, at, at the front line. Yet all of our homes here were not being enabled to actually uh, use PPE and, and mask their staff. And what, what is the result? Well, in downtown Toronto today, I believe there's one hospital in outbreak mm -hmm. and there's 25 homes here in outbreak and countless deaths. So it's this double standard that we've almost allowed to occur and almost that we've almost also allowed us not to keep pace with the science and the evidence to allow us to act more quickly and nimbly, if you will, in these settings that are literally the killing fields, as opposed to 
what we would allow to happen in hospitals where we're more preoccupied, I think, as a province with getting ventilators than saying the number one issue should be getting PPE, first of all, to our folks working in our, um, in our long-term care and retirement homes. And so you imagine that these folks who work in these homes who've been undervalued, you know, feel less safe than, say, folks working in hospitals. And it just, it's a, it's a, it's a problem that keeps um, spinning in, in circles and getting worse and spiraling, I feel. So now you have homes already across the province uh, in, in Ontario where workers are getting sick, where there's outbreaks, you know, and then the, the, the homes where we had 80% of homes already in Ontario reporting that they were having problems with staffing. Um, you now have homes that, that, that where the staffing structure is completely collapsed. So now you have, you go next door to the province of Quebec and the premier just announced today, 813 homes in outbreak. And now that these homes are collapsing, the deaths are just mounting, um, they're now going to finally dispatch doctors and other healthcare professionals into, um, if you will, the killing fields, if we want to go that far, um, because they just need to try and stem the tide. But it's almost that we're reacting and almost too late when it's maybe a public relations nightmare, as opposed to trying to get ahead and saying, wait, if all, if the most vulnerable people from COVID are in these homes, truly, you know, how, how, how strong is that iron ring that we're, that we want to build? Um, and, and how quickly are we making sure that we're providing the right advice and the support to best protect the most vulnerable amongst us? I just, I don't, I feel that we've had kind of conflicting responses or responses that aren't necessarily aligned truly with our values as a society. Yeah, um, it's hard to know where we go from here in long-term care because as you, as you say, it seems like the window to prevent, uh, uh, prevent pre infection and spread has probably passed and now we're, in, now we're in the thick of it. So I guess um, from your perspective of, of providing you know, evidence-based policy advice to governments, what can be done now to kind of limit the damage in uh, long-term care and, and the retirement home sector where we're also, we're also seeing kind of significant spread of the infection in uh, elderly and immunocompromised uh, populations? Yeah, no, I think, I think there's still things that we can do. It just, my concern is, are we going to be able to do them quickly enough, for example? So, um, you know, we have provinces, um, some provinces, for example, that still have not created restricted visitation policies um, and have only waited till further outbreaks have happened to now start falling in line with other provinces. So we know that we have to, true, to truly create an iron ring. Um, number one is you have to make sure that you're not having non-essential visits occur. Um, and that's tough, but you, we have to do that. Number two, there's been all this talk about saying we want to make sure that people aren't working between multiple homes. But how are you addressing that? Are you then making sure that if you're going to tell someone that you can't work between three homes, you've got to stay put at this one home? Are we actually making sure that we're now offering you know, full-time employment with benefits um, so that we actually finally do what we need to do? In some places, they're doing that. They're bribing workers because they're just so short of workers. Um, to try and stay in. In fact, BC is now taking the radical approach to announce that they're just going to nationalize all their homes and they're now going to make everybody, you know, give them full-time work, you know, with actual proper pay and benefits, believe it or not. Um, so that's how they've actually tried to even start commandeering things because they realize those systemic vulnerabilities are going to continue being that, uh, that weakness. But 
the other things we know is the evidence says right now we should be masking people in these homes. But right now, we're so worried about our PPE stores and worried about the crown jewels on University Avenue uh, that I feel that we've just kind of already um, allowed too many homes to allow the virus to come in by the staff, if you will, um, and spread. Uh, but we still have, while we have over 100 homes in outbreak across Ontario, um, that's both nursing and retirement homes, we still have 1,300 homes that aren't. So we still have an opportunity to know what we know and apply what we know now. And that includes making sure that we're properly implementing the testing protocols that we know that we should be compared to two weeks ago when we were still using flu protocols, which were actually inadequate and allowing us to allow this to spread further around um, and not take the action we do. Of course, you know, we can't just say that we had all this knowledge and, and, and hindsight's always 2020. But I think now that we've learned enough and the knowledge keeps coming out, I just feel that there's a gap between applying that knowledge and also allowing the fact that we had problems with testing, we also had problems with PPE access, is still kind of making us hesitant to doing the right thing. Um, and it, it just, it concerns me because I feel that part of what enables kind of us to maybe not really take this as seriously and act as quickly as we should is the fact that I still think there is a societal view that, well, maybe we can afford these sorts of losses because, well, they were only a few years or a number of months away from dying anyways. Isn't, isn't that okay? But I don't know. I don't sleep well at night when I think that we're, that we're allowing certain lives to be prioritized less than others. Uh, so the, the, the premier came out with some pretty harsh words for the, for the healthcare system in terms of testing. Who should we be testing? Uh, how should we be kind of prioritizing that testing capacity to uh, to, to limit the, the, the damage from this virus? Yeah, and, and this is a story, right, where, again, you know, we people say, well, why didn't we start preparing our lab system earlier than we did? And because we we almost, you know, got started a bit too late, all of a sudden we then ended up with that backlog. Um, and great work has been done to clear the backlog, as you noted. Um, but now it almost becomes this opposite part, that not only were we complaining about the backlog, but now we're, we're, we're complaining about the capacity. And we're talking about less than a week now since we cleared the backlog. Um, and then there became a great opportunity. Uh, I was appointed to a committee um, uh, that's supporting the government to basically say, okay, well, how do we make best use of our capacity so that we're actually using that so well that we can get ahead of this? But you know, I think, you know, politicians can be impatient. Um, and, and I think when we hear things like, wow, goodness, you know, we, we, we have this massive backlog and now this, the size of the backlog is the size of the capacity gap now. Let's just test everyone potentially. And I'm worried that that might be the, the, the reaction that anyone who wants a test can get a test, but that's not necessarily going to allow us to actually use our testing capacity to really finally get ahead of this thing or at least keep up. In fact, if we actually start seeing some of the projections, just allowing anybody to get a test, for example, again, if we have you know, 14 million people in this province and we have the capacity of 15 to 20,000 tests a day, you can see that that quickly can get overwhelmed if everybody who wants a test can get a test, as opposed to making sure that we are creating the best testing protocols so that we're using our testing capacity judiciously and smartly. So 
I am worried that um, that we're again maybe not using the evidence or using the science as best we can to get ahead of this um, in the best ways possible. And I think this is where we need to um, um, sometimes let the scientists lead, but it's it's hard to also lead. And and I and I do I don't feel I you know I I. I don't besmirch, you know, the folks who have to make these ultimate decisions because, you know, I might say the evidence says that we've got to mask everyone in long-term care, but then they also look at you and say, well, we have a shortage of PPE, so what do you do? And I don't have to make that decision. Um, so I can easily sit on the sidelines, if you will, and criticize. But, um, but I think sometimes we have to be really mindful about how the desires to move things quickly can sometimes mean that um, we may miss opportunities to finally catch up and get ahead. Um, I've got one, one kind of final question, and you've been very generous with your time. And that's, you know, they, we're, we're in a very dark spot now as uh, societally, and particularly for those working on the front lines of the healthcare system. But there are, I guess, even within this darkness, some green shoots that are emerging. You're seeing in other jurisdictions that they've started to turn the corner. Uh, we're seeing some signs, you know, fingers crossed in, in Canada that the that the progression might not be as dire as we as we'd foreseen. As we start to look to the future, as we start to look to the recovery from this, what are the kinds of things that you want people to keep in mind, and how does how does uh, our system of how we care for older Canadians? really need to fundamentally and sustainably change as a result of what we've learned uh, as we start to tackle COVID-19? I think the challenge is because we haven't had, you know, a pandemic um, so significant in such a long time that especially had a predilection for the elderly. I think we've really kind of opened up a lot of these systemic vulnerabilities and, and just allowed them to lay themselves bare. So some people are already now starting to call and say, we need to overhaul our entire long-term care system and just do what BC did and said, finally pay the workers a decent wage, give them full-time work and benefits. Um, and let's just finally do what we should have been doing all along. I don't know if that's necessarily the answer, but the key thing is, when we when we emerge from the other side of this, um, I want to make sure that we can look back and say, did we actually have a system that allowed us to use the best evidence to finally catch up um, and really prevent you know, as many deaths as possible? Um, do we have a system that was strong enough from the outset uh, that it could actually weather uh, a pandemic uh, reasonably well? And I think this is where I think we'll have some reckoning beyond this, where we'll have to say, if we truly are disappointed or were disappointed with um, how vulnerable our long-term care system was, hopefully that will compel us to finally make some changes that I think have been long overdue. And it's sad that it took a pandemic for us to finally um, maybe move on some of those aspects. But I hope that um, fundamentally we realize that uh, that I don't know who the next vulnerable population will be with the next pandemic or whatever. But if we look at how and why we let um, things potentially get so out of hand in, in certain jurisdictions and, and with respect to how we are managing things, it may give us clear lessons learned um, so that we, um, that we don't repeat some of the same mistakes again. So I'm, I'm hopeful that you know, we haven't necessarily missed all the opportunities here. I think there's new science now that's quickly emerging. There's new opportunities for us to 
um, uh, to understand how to better test and isolate and prevent and treat um, or at least manage um, this pandemic. Uh, and so I hope we just don't allow uh, politics or other things to kind of get in the way of getting the job done and, and, and moving through this as well as possible. So I'm still hopeful and I'm still providing advice to the government that you know, is slowly being implemented and moving forward. Uh, I just hope that uh, we can do it in the best possible way to minimize um, the number of deaths, especially in the population that I've devoted my life to caring for. Well, we're, we're all wishing you the best of luck in this as many of us are watching from the sidelines uh, by necessity. Um, you're gonna have some tough weeks and months ahead and uh, we hope that you do well uh, personally through what's gonna be a trying time. And thank you very much for, for sharing your perspective this evening. Thank you. Thanks, Dan, for having me. Thanks for listening. You can find this episode and more on our website at santashealth.ca and on our Twitter at Santas Health. This has been from the Burgundy Chairs.